0: Which way do you, which way do you, Lord, which way do you? Which way do you, Lord, which way do you... Great to be with you today as we kick off summer. You know, if you haven't been with Nativity for very long, we're all together today doing something new. And if you are new or relatively new around here, we would love to greet you. If you visit our Welcome Center, for those that are on campus right after the message today, we have a gift to say thanks for joining us. Or if you're online, you can text the word WELCOME to 88877, and we will send you that gift. Well, for the next three weeks, I will be leading off our summer message series, and then Father Nicholas will take it up from there for three weeks following, and Tom Corcoran will take us home for a five week series all the way up to Labor Day weekend. So, those are the people, and here is the plan. During summer, we like to preach on nice, light topics. We talked about heaven a couple of years ago, we've talked about Old Testament figures. And we know that this is a time of year people are often traveling, you might be in or out, not quite as dialed in as other times of the year, and so that's why we like to keep it light. So this summer we're starting out with the series Life, a series of choices. It sounds nice, it sounds light, until you hear what we're really talking about, which is the seven deadly sins. but don't worry. Let's get this straight. You have nothing to worry about. We're going to be talking about the seven deadly sins, but what we're really talking about is the human condition and how God's timeless wisdom can help us in our imperfection. And before you get too scared, I just want to make three promises to you during this series. So promise number one, we cast no guilt. I want you to know that Even if there are moments that you feel convicted about sin during this series, you will not be made to feel guilty. Promise number two, you will be challenged. Talking about sin necessarily means talking about our own choices in life, making a change in the way that we act and the choices that we make. But hopefully we'll do that in a respectful way, in a way that um, is very real to life and encouraging to you. And promise number three, God's grace is bigger than our sin. Any discussion of sin needs to start with the idea that God's mercy is new every morning, that the Father's love is greater than our sin, and it is unfailing. So we cast no guilt, you will be challenged, and God's grace is bigger than our sin. Hopefully those promises persuade you that this series is going to be worth your time, and with those promises in mind, let's get started. So the first thing I wanna do is to just take a step back. Before we talk about the seven deadly sins, we need to talk about sin in general. What is sin? Sin is really about the human condition. Sin is both an ancient and ever-present reality. It's something that technology and knowledge have not changed much over time. It's the same as it ever has been. And the most basic meaning of sin is really not religious at all. The most basic way to define sin is to just say, sin is to miss the mark. Or some people say it this way, Sin means a failure to reach the goal. And failure really is one of life's great teachers. So if we're failing to reach the goal, what is that goal? Well, we find it in the very beginning of the Bible, start of Genesis. We learn that the human is made in the image of God. And that means that we are each sacred beings who represent our creator. We're worthy of respect. And so, in this way of seeing the world, sin is a failure to love God and love our neighbor and give them the honor that they deserve. And we can see this in the Ten Commandments. Half of them are about honoring God, and half of them are about honoring people. So, failing to honor God is deeply connected to failing to honor people. Sin is actually the failure to be truly human. And the fascinating thing in the Bible is that sin, most of the time, when people are failing, They don't recognize it. And even worse, they think that they're succeeding. If you look at Pharaoh in the Old Testament, Pharaoh builds an entire economy, an entire way of life around the idea that their country and his security need to be protected. And he enslaves all the Israelites because of that. He doesn't realize that he has this huge moral failure. King Saul chases David all through the wilderness trying to kill him until Saul realizes that he is the one who is corrupt and he eventually exclaims, I have sinned. We can be terrible judges of moral failure and success. And why is that? Well, it comes back to that human condition. We have original sin from our ancestors that make us inclined to choose selfishly rather than selflessly. And this is exactly what a certain monk was thinking in the fourth century when he came up with this first list of deadly sins that would become the seven that we know today. The monk was named Vigrius Ponticus. Sounds like a name maybe from Harry Potter, but this was a real person in the fourth century, and he wrote a work called Practicos where he described the wicked thoughts that lead us away from God. And this was his original list. Gluttony, sloth, sorrow lust wrath avarice vainglory and pride you know that this is going to be a fun series when we start out with that list right so this list is not exactly the seven that we know today there's eight on the list and some of them are just slightly different so fast forward about 200 years to the sixth century pope gregory the great found this original list and he wanted to modify a couple of things collapse a couple of things into another add something else, and he came up with the list of seven sins that we know today. Gluttony, sloth, lust, anger, envy, greed, and pride. And in the coming weeks, we're going to cover these one a week, maybe two for some weeks, and we'll go over each one in a lot more detail. So the easiest thing to say as we begin this series is just don't do that. Don't be gluttonous, slothful, lustful, angry, envious, greedy, or proud. But it's more complicated than that because we are sinful. Being human beings, we will eventually return to sin despite our best efforts. And so we fall into these patterns and they're repeated and we can see it across time and culture and they're still throughout our cultural references. We see it in Dante's Inferno they travel through the levels of hell based on the seven deadly sins. It's said that the seven dwarves from Snow White are each based on one of the deadly sins. Gilligan's Island, the characters, are said to be connected to the deadly sins. And if that wasn't enough, Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt put the ultimate stamp of legitimacy, cultural legitimacy to these sins when they started in the movie Seven. That's the stamp, of course, of Hollywood. So, These seven deadly sins, even though we hear about them in different ways, they're often forgotten. Even though we just had the list of sins up on the screen, I bet most of us wouldn't be able to name all seven right now. In fact, we just we don't talk about sin very much, and part of that is because truth seems more relative than ever. So, it's more than ever taboo to talk about sin. We put it on a shelf with sex, money, politics the things that we will not talk about at the family dinner table. But I want to sell you on the value of talking about sin. So here are three reasons that it is worth doing to talk about sin. Reason number one, sin is a part of the human condition. It's not a you problem, it's not a me problem, it's an us problem. It's a human problem. Reason number two, to name our sins is to know them. Just like a coach In a sport would teach you how to position yourself correctly and how to react. When we begin to name our sins, we can recognize them. We can position ourselves so that the temptation does not strike us in the same way. And reason number three, to know our sins is the first step to freedom. To know our sins is the first step to freedom. We take the power away from sin when we speak about it. When we acknowledge it, we can work on it. We can be accountable for it. Sin breeds in darkness, but it dies in the light. So to understand our sin, it's helpful to look at the root of it. The first sin, the original sin, the sin of Adam and Eve. And the first three chapters of Genesis tell us a lot about who we are as human beings. So you've probably heard this passage as much as any in the Bible. We're going to take a look today just briefly at Genesis chapter 3, but I want us to do it with some fresh eyes and with a particular lens because we know the story. You know the story. In fact, I'm going to have you tell the story instead of me. So I'll start the phrase, and I want you to finish it for me. Whether you're here in the sanctuary or if you're at home, you can finish it as well. So I'll start, you finish. Adam and Eve are tempted by the by the devil, by the snake, the serpent, Satan. They eat fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then all of a sudden, Adam and Eve feel shame because they are are naked, right? So we know the story, but we may not have looked at the consequences before. So that's where our focus is going to be with this reading. They ate the fruit so what? What happened? So we're going to pick up the story right as the original sin is committed. It's Genesis 3:6. Eve took some of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. So we're off and running with lots of consequences, even here in this first little stanza. This passage is packed with these consequences. So Eve eats the fruit. What's the first thing that she does? She hands it to Adam, and my sin leads to your sin. And then Adam and Eve can both see for the first time that they are naked. Their shame is overwhelming, so they cover themselves. Now up to this point, God has said, that the human being, the human body, is not just good like everything else in creation, but it is very good. And now with sin, the body is a source of shame. That's a huge dramatic shift. And now the Lord comes back into the story. When they heard the sound of the Lord God walking about in the garden at the breezy time of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God then called to the man and asked him, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. So here again is the shame, but there's something more. Adam and Eve hide from God. It's not just that they feel guilty, it's that they avoid God so that they don't have to be confronted. Because when we're confronted, we're forced to deal with our guilt. So God asks them, where are you? And this isn't a game of divine hide and seek. God knows their physical location. It's a rhetorical question. Where are you? Where are you in your life? How are your habits? Is there any guilt that you're holding on to? How can I help you if you hide from me? And our answer to that question says everything about the state of our heart. Are we hiding from God? Are we open to him? Where are you? The consequences continue as their exchange continues. Then God asked, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I had forbidden you to eat? The man replied, the woman who you put here with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree, so I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman answered, the snake tricked me. So I ate it. The snake told me to do it. It's the oldest trick in the book, literally. Why don't kids reuse that line a little bit more often? It seemed to work for Adam and Eve, sort of. You'll notice that God doesn't really condemn them. He just asks them, and their response is to blame others. Adam blames Eve. It was the woman you put here. He even blames God. Eve blames the snake. He tricked me. So there's enough blame to go around. Now that the fruit is eaten, the sin is just piling on sin. And at this point, God explains the consequences and the generational impact of sin, of original sin on us. So this is where the human condition comes from. First thing God says is the snake will be cursed to crawl on its belly, but then he gets into the human stuff. Childbearing will be painful. Men will toil at work. Life will never be the same and we will return to the ground from which we were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We repeat that line on Ash Wednesday every year because it is a reminder of our human condition. So I would summarize the consequences of original sin in this way. Sin is a personal act. My sin leads to more sin. My sin makes it easier for you to sin. And last, our sins are varied, but their source is the same. This is what's passed down to us as an inheritance all the time. And then there's a final consequence in this passage. So the final consequence is that human beings are banned from the Garden of Eden. And our first parents gave up paradise because the lure of sin was so mesmerizing that they forgot what was most important. But I wanna show you this last line from the passage because it concludes with this little glimmer of hope, and we would miss it if we didn't look carefully. God stationed the cherubim, the angels, and the fiery revolving sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. The tree of life. What is that? Well, it's the same tree that provides the wood for the cross. The tree of life is God's hope and plan for humanity. And despite everything, it's protected. It's the notion that despite all that happened with Adam and Eve, despite everything that's happened since, and despite all that is happening in our world today, the discord and disagreements and wars and pandemics and road rage and neighborly squabbles and all of the consequences of sin, despite all of that, the tree of life stands tall and true. It's guarded by angels, and we have reason to hope in the face of our sin and its consequences. The good news is that God's favorite hobby is redemption. And for all of his almighty qualities, God doesn't appear to be a very good negotiator because all he wants from us is to admit our sins, to bring them to him so that he can forgive them. And given what we just talked about, that's a pretty good deal. In 1 John 5, 9, it says this, If we acknowledge our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from every wrongdoing. When we talk about sin, when we recognize it, we can amend our life. We can be conscious of the choices we make. And that is why we're doing a series on sin. Even though we could be doing something lighter, even though it's summer, even though we know the end of the story. We're doing this series because each one of us is a work in progress because God has timeless wisdom that can teach us to live more fully and because life is a series of choices that we have each day between vice and virtue, good and bad, right or wrong. And if it sounds a little bit trite to simplify it to that, vice or virtue, it really is true. That's what we do throughout our day. And in fact, during this series, we'll look at how each of the seven deadly sins has an opposite virtue. We'll look at how pride can be humility, lust can be chastity, anger, patience, how greed can be generosity, envy, kindness, sloth, diligence, and how gluttony can instead be temperance. The choice, like most of life, is actually quite simple. It's not easy, but it is simple. So we can deceive ourselves, but we cannot deceive God. So this series isn't about quick fixes. It's not about silver bullets. It's a process, a lifelong personal one because we have a tendency to sin. We go back to it and so we keep working on it as well throughout our lives, not so that we can be saved, Jesus has already done that, but so that we can grow closer to God and one day come to the new Eden where Jesus can wash us of our sin, can wash us of its consequences, and where the human condition does not hold us back any longer. During this series, I hope two things for you. First, I hope that you would join us. If you're here on campus, you can join us for Mass. If you're not local and not able to join us at church, please log in online. We want to be able to take this journey together. And second, I encourage you to examine your conscience, to really work on that in the next few weeks. Look for the places in your life that need to be exposed to the light. And then when you're ready, to take advantage of the sacrament of confession. If you haven't been for a while or if you've never been, that's okay. If you don't feel confident doing it, we have some tools to help. If you're here on campus today, we'll have a card that you can take with you as you leave explaining what happens and helping you prepare for confession. Or if you're watching online, we will have that card available on our social media or you can get it digitally this week. Confessions happen each Saturday here at Nativity at 3 p.m. or if you wanna look for a time at your local church, usually Saturday afternoon is a good time. Confession really isn't a burden if we think about Jesus meeting us there. It's an opportunity for grace, for God's help, for freedom from our sin. God doesn't need our confession. We need his unmerited grace. So this message series might not be the lightest of topics but it is ultimately a message of hope. And so I wanna leave you with the words of hope from the Apostle John. If we acknowledge our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from every wrongdoing. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the tree of life, for that glimmer of hope in the face of our sin For the way that you had a plan all along even in our fallenness and our brokenness in the world that we live in that we can work to move from vice to virtue with your help and we pray for that hope we pray for that commitment to work on ourselves during this series we pray in jesus name Amen. amen